Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is show in one week, but just kind of played out that way this time. Luke, how are you doing this evening? Rare occurrence. I guess you just can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good problem to have. So, uh, so Luke, we're, we're continuing on, on our theme on Solo Scriptura. And, and we're kind of narrowing the focus to Acts chapter 15. And I want to just give it to you. Tell everybody what's happening here in Acts chapter 15 and show how the, the quote, Sola Scriptura crowd, close quote, actually gets it wrong here. And the floor is yours. John, uh, hopefully you're not going to hate me. <laughs> Could I throw a tiny wrench in the spokes uh, when it comes to uh, how we're going to start this? Because uh, uh, last week, or, or on Monday, we discussed the odor of sanctity a little bit. And I'd like to elaborate on that because I think a lot of people don't get into the history of that and see how this confirms the, the Catholic faith on a spiritual level and has confirmed the Catholic Church on a spiritual level for 2,000 years. And uh, I, wanted, I, I want to just give uh, a couple quotes from history, and then I want to kind of put this together, and then uh, it'll be a segue into uh, Acts 15. So to start, this, this idea of, uh, of the odor of sanctity is something that has been present since the beginning of Christianity. And we, and we see this in documents such as uh, the teaching of the, uh, the apostles, also known as the Discalia. Uh, this is a document that uh, it presents itself as if it was written by the 12 apostles, but it's dated to about 230 AD. But the thing about this is these ancient documents, they, they, they may have been created at a certain date, but there's things in them that go back even further. So they're really hard to judge. Uh, there's uh, uh, one of the fathers, Epiphanius of Salamis in 310 uh, to 420 AD. He lived about that time. He believed that the Didascalia was authentic. 
so I'll, I'll read a little bit from the Didascalia. And it says, and while Simon Kephas was saying these things to his fellow apostles and putting them in remembrance, a mysterious voice was heard by them and a sweet odor, which is strange to the world, breathed upon them and tongues of fire between the voice of the odor came down from heaven toward them and alighted and sat on every one of them. And according to the tongue, which every one of them had uh, severely received, so did he prepare himself to go to the country in which that tongue was spoken and heard. And by the same gift of the Spirit, which was given to them on that day, they appointed ordinances and laws, such as were accordance with the gospel of their preaching and with the true and faithful doctrine of their teaching. We go on and Augustine writes, Late have I loved thee, beauty ever ancient, ever new. Thou didst breathe fragrance upon me, and I drew my and I drew in my breath. Now this uh, uh, is also written about by Eusebius, History of the Church, and the way he writes this, it's almost like these things were happening all the time. And uh, so he's he's writing about the Church at Gaul in 150 A.D. He received a letter from the Church at Gaul, and in relationship to this event, uh, Eusebius also gets this information from the Church of Gaul that these martyrs were welcomed in heaven by our spiritual mother. But uh, uh, we're, we're concerned right now about the odor of sanctity part. He puts, for the first, first went out rejoicing, glory and grace being blended in their faces, so that even their bonds seemed like beautiful ornaments as those of a bride adorned with variegated golden fringes, and they were perfumed with the sweet savor of Christ so that some suppose they had been anointed with an earthly ointment. So Eusebius is writing about these things as if they're happening all the time. And before Eusebius, you, uh, you know, have the, uh, the, the possibility that uh, there was other things that were going on at Pentecost. And those included the odor of sanctity. And so we have this, uh, and uh, we, we don't know if uh, I'm, I'm saying this is a fact, this is, you know, a document that goes back to that time. But we can say that by uh, the 230 AD, the odor of sanctity was was present and understood in the Catholic Church and has been there through different events for 2000 years, confirming our faith. So. I'm trying to follow you here. I mean, this is very, very interesting stuff, but I'm chomping as a bit trying to figure out how you're going to make the connection. And it sounds like what you're saying is that this kind of, um, this kind of confirmation, the odor of sanctity is really a confirmation may have actually occurred at the council of Jerusalem, kind of the, the, kind of the Holy spirit, uh, signifying that he signs off on, on their decision? Is, is that where we're going here? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just getting to the idea that it could have been present in the church from the very beginning. So when there's decisions made in the church and things like that, we already have the understanding that the Holy Spirit was with this church in mm-hmm. not only a way of giving them doctrine, but a mystical spiritual reality that was present. And uh, let let me, let me go on a little further on this. And uh, what's fascinating in the book of Enoch, uh, 
Uh, a lot of people date this book to about 500 BC. Some date it to about the Maccabean uprising type period. And uh, while studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, I came across uh, uh, this book by Martin and Wise, a new, uh, a new translation of the Book of Enoch. And there's a scroll in there called the Patriarchal Scroll. And in, and, uh, in this scroll, it says that the Pharaoh of uh, 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 it says that Abraham read from the Book of Enoch to the Pharaoh of Zoan's advisors, and they're amazed at his wisdom. And so I was studying the book of Enoch, and in the book of Enoch, again, we see the odor of sanctity. And so I will read that, and then we'll move on to Acts 15. So it says, Among these there was a tree of an unceasing smell, nor of those which were in Eden was there one of all the fragrant trees which smelt like this. Its leaves, its flowers, and its bark never withered, and its fruit was beautiful. Its fruit resembled a cluster of a palm. Enoch says, I exclaimed, Behold, this tree is goodly in, in every aspect, pleasing in its leaf and sight, and its fruit is delightful to the eye. Then Michael, one of the holy glorious angels who were, who were with me, and one presided over them, answered and said, Enoch, why dost thou inquire respecting the odor of this tree? Why art thou inquisitive to know? Then I, Anak, replied to him and said, Concerning everything I am desirous of instruction, but particularly concerning this tree. He answered me, saying, That the mountain which thou beholdest, the extent of whose head resembles the seat of the Lord, will be the seat on which he shall sit, uh, uh, the holy and great Lord of glory. And he goes on and says that this tree... Uh, the odor will enter everybody's bones, all the righteous, uh, uh, in, in, in the end period of time. And they will live on earth as if they did be, you know, before the flood. So it's a reference to before the flood. In other words, it's just referencing the difference between the ages of people before the flood and, and after the flood. But the, this idea of this blessing, of this spiritual confirmation of the Holy Spirit, was present all the way to the beginning. So in the church, uh, it, it just gives another mystical understanding of even God's presence in the councils and things like this, because we knew uh, through things like this that we weren't just talking about uh, legalism and, and establishing doctrine with the magisterium, but we were talking about the Holy Spirit guiding this church for 2,000 years and these spiritual signs uh, they're present with this church. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty intense. Uh, it, it just goes to show. So it's a uh, we, we've always known that, and we've always known that we had the confirmation of, of the Holy Spirit. But now here it is, threaded throughout the history, as something as a tangible, visible, sensible sign. Uh, uh, confirming that. So that's uh, exactly, exactly. And it's, it's it, when I first started looking that, you know, after I experienced the odor of sanctity, I, I, I felt just compelled to just to study these things. And I found that, and I'm, I just went, wow, you know, it's just, it, it, it's just so amazing because it, it's only in the church. Yeah, and it's kind of like the 
kind of like the incorruptibles. We we already have the proof. We already have the truth. But uh, it's it, it's it's a nice little uh, you know it's a nice little sign on top of everything else. When we have you know incorruptibles like uh, Saint Bernadette and Saint Catherine Lavaray and and so many others, kind of yes. the same thing. Yes, yes, and this is just two thousand years of it. I mean, you you, you know you, you talk to different Catholics who have the who just about everybody knows somebody who's had these experiences. Yeah. And, and for the record, I have, I have experienced it. It is, uh, it is, it's, it's unexplainable. Uh, there you so go. I have, I have, ex, I have experienced it. So now to make our segue, Luke, um, I had a debate. Well, I've actually had four debates on blog talk radio on the subject of Sola Scriptura. I've had about uh, 25, 26 debates total, four about Sola Scriptura. And I just believe when you're debating a Protestant, always try and start the debate at Sola Scriptura. I, I just exactly. believe that, that's the foundation that everything else they believe sets on. And... Uh, the debate I had about nine years ago was with this uh, lady named Brenda Johnson. And this was the question, this was one of the questions that I got that just really stumped her, that she really was not able to answer. And I, and I just said, basically, look, look at what happens in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem and show me a scriptural basis for the decisions they make. With the scripture that was available to them, show me how they drew on scripture to answer this this question. She could not do it, and um, and again, the floor is yours. I, I I love how you opened, but now it's let's 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 get into this. Can you make a scriptural argument to support the decision of the Council of Jerusalem? Well, we could start just by looking at a logical progression of how that council came to be. Uh, There's uh, looking at simple and logical progression of the establishment of the church in Scripture makes Scripture alone impossible. Uh, Let me paint a picture, giving you an example of this progression and some examples of cause and effect. And uh, this will, again, we'll, we'll segue right into the deeper understanding of Acts 15. So Jesus came from the line of David. Therefore, Scripture shows us the begots. Jesus said, I will build my church. The apostles believed there in the last days where prophecy is fulfilled. Council of Jerusalem, James quoted the prophet Amos, showing the prophecies fulfilled that the kingdom of David has been reestablished in the church for both Jews and, Jews and Gentiles. Paul said, while writing to the Church of the Baptized, uh, he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem. Well, Mount Zion in prophecy is the mountain of the Lord, which we go to in order to learn the wisdom of God. Jesus said, if they hear you, they hear me. They reject you. They reject uh, me and the one who sent me. Jesus told the church, behold, I will be with you always, even to the consummation of the world. He said, if they did not listen even to the church, treat them as heathens and publicans. Paul tells us to him be glory in the church through all generations, which means the true church of the one doctrine is present 
in all generations from 33 AD forward till the end of time. No Protestant church comes close. Jesus would never have given Peter the keys of binding and loosing and succession of the kingdom of David if he was not reestablishing the kingdom of David as James announced. Paul would never have called the church the pillar and foundation of truth. He would never have said that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places through the church if he did not believe that the church is Mount Zion, the reestablished kingdom of David. Therefore, when Paul says, how can one preach unless he be sent, he is saying the, he is saying the only authority that can send is the reestablished kingdom of David. When he said, right. obey your prelates who have the rule over you, for they watch so, over your souls. So let when me interrupt said, for just one second. Go ahead. Let me Go ahead. interrupt for just one second, because this is a logical stepping off point. Okay? Because... Everything that you're saying is very, very clear from this, from the um, the face of Scripture. Very, very clear what you're pointing out. So, if I'm going to establish any other church as being authentic, as being the real church, as being a, a, an, an alternative in any way to Catholicism, I have to demonstrate that this line of authority has in some way been broken. I have to demonstrate that. So you have to demonstrate that, makes, that God failed. Right. So so that makes sola scriptura not a not a uh deduction of the of 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 the facts. It's not a conclusion deduced from the facts. It is a it is a starting point. It is a starting point that you must establish in order to even be, begin making the argument. So people who believe in sola scriptura really believe in it out of necessity. They, they have to establish this doctrine in order to even give themselves a starting point. Yes, and, and, and look at the psychological effect of that. If Luther creates faith alone and, and scripture alone... Uh, he's doing it for the purpose of separation from the church. So in the, in the psychology of that, all of a sudden, after 1,500 years of truth, people began to try and, and dissect Scripture in order to try and make Scripture look like it's not Catholic. And so most of the time, they will go to a literalist understanding of just the word, when the more encompassing literal is more appropriate, or even vice versa. And, and, and it becomes uh, almost like a quest to take those scriptures that have been there for 1,500 years and this truth that has been there for 1,500 years and establish another understanding. Therefore, at that point, you create entropy. Because it's not of God anymore. It's right. man taking something, a truth that was established by God, and manipulating it into something different, establishing a different exegesis in a, in, an, in a concept that developed into a Protestant tradition. And in this Protestant tradition, 
they began to look at scripture through that tradition and judge Catholicism through that tradition. Right. So, so Luke, what they're doing, they're, they're not starting, they're not taking a journey through the facts to arrive at a conclusion. They're starting with a conclusion and then working their way back from that, trying to manipulate the facts to, to fit the conclusion that they already started as their pretense, right? It is, it is the absolute textbook definition of circular reasoning, right? The, the premise yes, is in the conclusion. Yes, but when we say they, most Protestants, you know, are, are, are there to love God. As they understand, as they understand God, and to love truth as they understand truth, but do the environmental influence of these things already, you know, established? They're going to look at Scripture through what their pastors say, and so through their pastors, they get these these literal processes where literalist is better, literalist where uh, where literal is better. And and the elimination of uh, uh, the need to look at history and things like this, and they see all that as truth because they also experience the uh, the love of the Holy Spirit. But outside of the pillar and foundation of truth, the Holy Spirit is primarily a manifestation yes. of God's love, not an affirmation of God's truth. This yeah, is I want to clarify what I was saying, so maybe if I was misunderstood with what I was trying to say. I'm not trying to impugn this. I've got lots of friends who are Protestants who are very, very godly people, so I wasn't trying to uh, impugn. No, no, no. I, I, I didn't think you were. I was just clear. What I'm doing is I'm just I'm approaching it from a logical standpoint. Exactly. From a logical exactly. standpoint, uh, you're you're not – you're not going from hypothesis to data to conclusion. You're going from a conclusion and then working your way back. So what happens is the Bible becomes a, a, an entire collection of disconnected words and phrases that we shove around kind of a la carte to try to find evidence of the ideology that we already have rather than taking the whole of scripture in context with the with the understanding that uh, we can't understand it by ourselves, we can't process it by ourselves, we need the church to understand the ling- linguistic context, the historical context, the typological context, and all of these things that go into understanding uh, the passages of scripture. Yes, scripture tells you you do. Scripture tells you you need the church. Uh, the verses that talk about the, the, the being guided by the Holy Spirit are always in the context of the church being guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, churches, uh, the, the scriptures on obedience are in the context of people inside the church being obedient to the teaching of the church, being obedient to the sacramental life. Right. So now let's bring this home to Acts chapter 15. And let's talk about what's happening there and how this demonstrates what we've just established. Yeah, well, what we're seeing in Acts chapter 15, if you start in, uh, in 14, you see that uh, you have uh, – let me go to it here. 
Well, you have a situation where uh, Paul is out and he's establishing churches. And in those churches, he is actually even establishing priests. And so in Acts chapter 15, you have priests, you have apostles, and you have baptized Pharisees. Yet the apostles were also priests. Irenaeus says all the apostles were priests. So you have the first council of the universal church with priests, with apostles, with these baptized Pharisees. And they're in a kind of a pickle because what's going on is these baptized Pharisees were trying to force the church to follow Mosaic law. And specifically, uh, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about what was the second legislation of Mosaic law. The uh, uh, Israelites were given the Ten Commandments, and the Israelites went astray and worshipped the golden calf. So God, uh, in mercy plus justice, gave them the pedagogy, the strict schoolmaster for a child, of the second legislation of Mosaic Law, which was basically everything in Leviticus, the uh, minus the Ten Commandments, the uh, your all of the rituals, all of the feast days, everything like that. So these baptized uh, Pharisees were boasting about keeping the Mosaic Law. <coughs> So it was, a, it was a real thorn in the side to Paul because Paul's trying to teach, you know, the, the Christian doctrine. And these Pharisees were basically usurping the authority of the church. So Paul doesn't take it upon himself to uh, create the solution. But Paul, even though he's an apostle, even though he had, you know, visions uh, from God and was infused basically with all the wisdom that he had, he still went to the church and went to the apostles. And so what happened? They all got together at this council to make the decision. And what happened right before this council is like we discussed a little bit uh, on Monday, Peter first had his vision. And in his vision, he basically came to the conclusion that these Levitical laws were for the past. They were for the Jews, and he no longer needed to keep them, I mean, to put things simply. So when Peter gets up there before the council, after the council debates, uh, after, uh, Peter gets up there, and he basically, through the power of the keys, eliminates 1,300 years of Mosaic law. He says, we are not saved by the law of Moses. We are all saved through grace. So right there is the first declaration of the Catholic Church through its papacy, through the power of the keys. And it didn't go over very well to some of the, uh, to, to some of the people that were on the other side. It sounds like he's attacking Moses. <laughs> yeah, it comes back to uh, uh, you know the the thing that Jude was experiencing 
where Jude's saying, you know, these people secretly entered into the church and they have gone in the way of Korah. And uh, Korah challenged, challenged Moses and the Korah's group challenged Moses and the earth opened up and there was fire uh, came up and everybody who uh, challenged the authority of Moses uh, basically uh, was sucked into the fire. So this is, uh, shows you that what God thinks of people who goes against who go against His authority. Well, it's just so authority. It's just so ironic that the Judaizers thought they were defending Moses when they didn't understand that there in front of them was the 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 modern replacement, the modern successor of Moses. Uh, in other words, uh, Moses was basically a typology of the church, of Peter. Yeah, and uh, uh, basically Christ was a type for Moses. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Moses was a type for Christ. Mm -hmm. And the elders of the church uh, in uh, the Old Covenant, they were giving, given control and uh, of the Passover uh, uh uh, process, and so then you have Christ who comes 1,300 years later, and says, "I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you." And who is he talking to? He's talking to the new elders of the church, who are being given control over the new Passover, which is the Holy Mass. All right, we're talking with Luke Haskell tonight, and we're continuing our exploration of Sola Scriptura. We're specifically talking about Acts chapter 15 tonight as to how it relates to Sola Scriptura. So if you'd like to comment or question, you can do it in the chat room, or you can call in 515-602-9655. That's 515-602-9655, and we will be back in just a moment. Looking for a Catholic counselor? Dr. Peter Claponis, Deb Rojas, and the team at Integrity Counseling Services provide faithful Catholic counseling in Pennsylvania and beyond. We offer telehealth and in-person counseling for porn addiction, betrayal trauma, anxiety, depression, marriage counseling, and much more. You can find us at IntegrityCounselingPA.com or 610-601-9781. That's IntegrityCounselingPA.com or 610-601-9781. Looking for a Catholic counselor or coach? Dr. Fred Boley provides faithful Catholic counseling and coaching for men in Missouri and beyond. He conveniently offers telehealth services for anxiety, depression, marriage counseling, or just getting stuff done. You can find him at stbarn.org or 872-269-1280. Once again, the number is 872-269-1280. She is a Catholic recording artist, multi-award winning songwriter. She sings contemporary and folk rock music. 
She has been in the music industry for over five years. Her music is her ministry. She aims to help people that suffer from all kinds of pain in life and try to bring them to the Lord through her music. She has three albums out and her music is being played on radio stations all over the world. Her website is lisamarinacole.com and she is on social media. Her music page is facebook.com Lisa Songs of Worship. YouTube at Lisa M. Nicole. Instagram Lisa underscore Marie underscore Nicole underscore official. Her songs can be purchased on her website, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, and everywhere else. Her merchandise store has everything for her ministry and can be accessed through her website. Her new CDs will be available very soon and can be purchased through her website. She counts herself blessed that God has chosen her to help spread his message. She is Lisa Marie Nicole. Get her music today. The Four Persons Network asks our Catholic friends to check out and join the fast-growing Catholic website, message board, and community at Catholicism Rock. Quality and diversity of contributors is breathtaking and the content spans everything from education to news and commentary and spiritual insight. Partners of the four persons and our friends. Please check them out at catholicismrocks.com. We now return to the regular program on your only real Catholic defenders of the deeper truth of our sacred faith. The four persons. Bring on Lewis. Lewis just called in. Lewis, what is your comment or question for uh, Luke with with regard to Acts 15 and Sola Scriptura? Well, um, what do you think is the greatest example? Um, Do you think that the two best verses to destroy Sola Scriptura are, you know, when um, when, uh, I believe it's, the apostle that Jesus loved, James, says that not everything that Christ did made in Scripture, or when Paul said to listen to everything they learn from them, it's written and, you know, comes from them orally. What do you think is the greatest example of, you know, the destruction of Sola Scriptura in the Bible? Yeah, I, I think it's an accumulation of things. I think it's just looking at what the epistles are. Uh, uh, We discussed this before, but if you look at the epistles over and over and over again, you see a rhetorical nature. They're rhetorical because Paul lived with lived with communities for up to three years. You know, he told uh, 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 Titus uh, uh, in Crete. He goes, this is why I left you in Crete, that you ordained priests in every city as I have appointed you. So he's establishing these churches with bishops, priests, and deacons, people who would baptize. And in these epistles, he's not setting them up like they're, you know, complete doctrines of faith. 
I mean, if, if, if that was his attempt, then he'd be doing a lousy job. Because over and over again, you have things like him talking to the church that is living the religion and ritual of the new covenant and reminding them of things by saying things like the cup of benediction that we bless. Is this not participation in the blood of Christ? Well, what's the answer to the question? The answer to the question is yes, because those who's writing to are celebrating the Holy Mass. So just with this simple common sense, sola scriptura becomes impossible. It becomes unworkable on a logical level, too, because the whole, it, 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 it's kind of a getting, getting the egg without the chicken kind of thing. It's, I, I mean, in, in order to believe in sola scriptura, you almost have to believe the Bible wrote itself. Because if you don't trust the church that gave you the Bible, how can you trust the Bible that the church gave you? Like I said, it, it, it's, it's like a dog in the center of a room chasing his tail around in circles. Yeah, I think it was Basil who basically said, you know, if, if we leave out the traditions of the church, then we injure the very, you know, vitals of the gospel. Because everything comes together with the traditions of the church. Basically, apostolic tradition was the faith lived. The epistles are letters addressing limited things to those people who are living the faith. I mean, how do we know how Peter got to Jerusalem? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, it's in the historical record, which is the tradition. In Butler's Lives, uh, we read, it uh, says that Isubi uh, St. Jerome and the Old Roman Calendar published by Bucharest, say that St. Peter held the seat for 25 years, though he was often absent upon his apostolic functions in other countries. According to the chronology, many place his first arrival at Rome in the second year of the reign of Claudius, the Christ, in 42, but all circumstances prove it to have been in the year 40, the 12th after the death of Christ, and 39. St. Peter went again to the east and in 51 was present at the general council at Jerusalem. So we, you have a complete picture if you accept the historical record of Christianity. St. Chrysostom writes about the council, something that goes against what uh, Protestants want to believe. Protestants want to believe that James was the superior uh, you know, bishop of that council, even though Peter was present. St. Chrysostom writes, and if anyone would say, how did James receive the chair of Jerusalem? I would reply that he appointed Peter as a teacher, not of the chair, but of the whole world. So you, you, it's like you're missing most of the pieces of the puzzle without the historical content and without the apostolic tradition, which was just simply the faith lived. Right. So to kind of sum up what we're talking about here, in Acts chapter 15, you have one side that understood the words of the, uh, of the second legislation of the Levitical law. They understood the words, but they didn't understand the context. And they didn't understand how the Davidic kingdom was a foreshadowing of what, what's to come. They didn't understand all of that context. And the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, did understand that context. And without that guidance of the Holy Spirit and that context, 
it really is impossible to to uh, to understand scripture, and yet here we are today facing exactly the same quagmire that was facing the opposing sides in in that council, right? Exactly. You know, at that council, what was James doing? James was just going, wow, because James was seeing prophecy fulfilled. James basically quoted Amos. Amos 9.12 says, And in that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will close up the breaches of the walls thereof, and repair what was fallen, and I will rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all nations, because my name is invoked upon them, saith the Lord, that doth these things. The apostles believed they were in the last day. James saw the prophecy fulfilled, and when he says all nations, he's showing that this is a church established by God, the reestablished kingdom of David, Mount Zion, through which the law of God, the wisdom of God goes out into the world. And it's uh, it must have been just amazing in that time, just watching these prophecies being fulfilled before your very eyes. Mm-hmm. Let me bring Lewis back on real quick and see what his comments are, and then I want to take the discussion uh, to the next level. Lewis, you have any more any more comments or questions? Lewis, you there? Oh yes, I have myself muted. I'm sorry. I'm oh, here. Go ahead. I said I do have one more comment to bounce up what Luke said. Um, going back to how the apostles ordained um, early successors, and those successors, like Timothy and Titus, ordained priests, bishops, and deacons. Um, Protestants will try to get around that by saying, well, the church is called, it's, it's called the people in this and that verse, but what they miss is that um, despite that, the bishops, the priests, and the deacons, and the pope are considered part of those people. So the church is the people, but that also includes the apostolic successors and the pope. It's not the laity alone. It's the laity under the obedience of, you know, the successors of the apostles and their priests and deacons. So um, even by that logic, they still fail. Protestants, because they don't have the leaders of the church that Christ ordained would, would still, wouldn't still be part, fully part of the church that Christ started. That's my, you know, what I want to say. I think it's an excellent observation, don't you, Luke? Yeah, and, uh, and to elaborate, there was a problem where we talked about that cognitive dissonance, and I see that a lot when it comes to identifying the priest. Because as soon as you identify the new covenant priesthood, then you see a reason for the Eucharist. You see a reason for the sacraments. You see a reason for obedience to the faith. So they argue with this word elder. And it's, if, if, if you take in the big picture uh, and look at the development of the word and uh, – how it was used in the first century, how, it, how uh, it, it kind of became what it presently is. Elder and presbyter are in the etymology of priest. Harius means someone dedicated to the temple, a priest. This is where uh, 
Peter would refer to when he says, you're a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This means somebody is dedicated or belonging to the temple, which in the spiritual reality is now the flesh of Christ. So we are all as a royal priesthood in the flesh of Christ, but inside the royal priesthood, there, there is an office. And where you get uh, uh, the word presbyter, Harius is not derived phonetically or etymologically from Harius. It is derived uh, or uh, presp- uh, derived from presbyteros, in which the shortened form of the word is priest. The apostles wrote why the temple was still standing and needed to distinguish the difference between the priests of the old covenant that offered bulls and goats and the priesthood of the new that ministered in the sacraments. And it looks like they did so by modeling the priesthood around the 70 elders who had the hands of Moses laid on them to convey the grace of God as bishops have done to priests for 2,000 years. So if you look at a word study for elder, uh, you can see that at the beginning, uh, elder or elderly man, presbyter, the word is used 66 times in the New Testament. It has a primary background in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition where the elders referred to as tribal leaders. By the first century, it was a collective name of Pharisaic teachers. Uh, we see this in Matthew 15:2. For a group within the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, we see it in Matthew 26:3. Or the senior officials of the Jewish synagogue. Uh, the notion of the ruling and religious elders uh, then carried over into the Christian tradition, which uh, we can see this in Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 20, where an elder or presbyter then became referred to as an ordained shepherd of the church who preached the gospel and administered the sacraments, which we see in 1 Timothy 5.17, Titus 1.5. And from this word is derived priest. And as soon as we move from the apostolic age into the historical record, we see priests consecrating the Eucharist. Um, you talk about cognitive dissonance. I, I want uh, to step off of what you just said into another way that they go into cognitive dissonance. And that is, first of all, Protestantism talks about the sacredness of Scripture. They talk about Scripture alone, and yet they took seven books out of the Bible, out of the canon of Scripture. That's the first part. Then the second part is they tend to cherry pick uh, not only which books they want to emphasize, for, for instance, they want to emphasize Paul's epistles over what it says, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, and then they want to emphasize certain parts of the epistles. Uh, for example, they want to put a focus on Romans chapter 4 as if it proves that works are not involved in faith, but then in order to do that, you've got to pr- pretty much throw out chapter two of the same book. So, is there a cognitive dissonance in, in the way that they that they approach scripture? They 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 say, well, scripture alone, scripture sacred. Number one, we're going to define ourselves what is scripture, and number two, we're going to define uh, of the canonized scriptures. We're going to define what we emphasize 
and what we pretty much want to ignore. Isn't there a cognitive dissonance there? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say because when you're in an environment and you're expressing love for God in that environment and you're being taught certain things and you see these things through what you believe is the love of God, and so you think that the Holy Spirit is leading you to truth of these things. So it becomes just natural to read these scriptures and think that they are, you know, truth according to what you've been taught. Uh, an example is Ephesians 2. You know, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works that anyone uh, may boast, uh, because we are as workmen at creating good works. Where if you look at the bigger picture, who is Paul talking to? He's talking to the church living of faith who is saved by baptism, which is uh, grace given freely. It's destruction of original sin, destruction of active sin up to the point of baptism. They're living the sacramental life. So all of this is grace given freely. Paul says through faith. Well, how did a first century Jewish uh, convert understand faith well faith was was never just intellectual assent belief was through a covenant relationship with God so when an apostle says faith he's talking about something totally different than a Protestant sees he's talking about living obedience to the faith in a covenant relationship with God So we have the grace of the sacraments. We have faith, the covenant relationship, not of works that anyone may boast. Well, who is boasting? It was the baptized Pharisees who were boasting about keeping the second legislation of Mosaic law. So it had nothing to do with works in general. This whole concept of works, the only time Paul mentions works as general works are when he talks about, you know, being good to others. Uh, when James talks about giving somebody your cloak, when, when, and he says faith without works is dead, these are the works he's talking about. Yeah. So when, when Paul puts works in a bad light, the only works he ever puts in a bad light are the ones that the baptized uh, Pharisees were trying to force down their throats, which is right. ceremony law, uh, ceremonial laws, the ritual laws. These are right. what their both and, was. And, and you just you just hit the word on the head by using the word ceremony because that's what they were doing. They were acting on ceremony. The Pharisees were practicing works of ceremony. They were practicing works of ritual. They were, they were practicing a mechanical form of faith that lacked love and mercy and all of the things that give genuine saving faith. It's, it's real value. And this is what Paul and James are contrasting. They're contrasting this mechanical action of works versus the action of works that spring from the love of Christ that comes through grace. Am I describing this fairly? And that takes us right back to the Council of Jerusalem. This, This idea of the law of rule, fear, and temporal punishment. I mean, there's even temporal punishment where 
if there is an adulterer, there should be stoned. So these, these are laws which were a pedagogy for a people of hardened heart, for people who had 400 years in Egypt, for people who are constantly being uh, influenced by paganism, for people who were uh, you know, uh, enslaved in, in Babylon, for people who brought back uh, kind of a mixture of a religion of angels uh, from the Babylonian uh, priests and their Judaism. So all of these things were going on uh, at this time, and we need to look at this bigger picture when we look at this idea of grace, because this uh, ceremonial law, these words, these letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, is what the church was up against. And so when Peter says we're saved by grace, well, we are transformed into new people through our baptism. We are transformed through the cross, through the love of Christ, through looking at the image of God becoming man, going to that cross, suffering incredibly. And we hear the words, no greater love than a man has than to give up his life for another. So this transformation through love is, you know, our development into holy beings. The focus on what is holy. When uh, Christ gave us his body and blood, we as Catholics understand that that is something that is a holy thing, a sacred thing. And it transforms our lives through the grace of that, and through the focus on knowing we are not of this world, we are of that world. We are of the Eucharistic world. Right. And uh, I mean, what you said about Jesus is is um, is especially true. And and you get into this ideology number one that uh, that the father imposed a punishment, a penalty upon Jesus. And it was, uh, uh, you know, the, the father had to punish somebody for all the sin of the world. And he, and he unhurled all of his wrath on, on, on Jesus rather than the fact that it was a willing suffering of Jesus. It was a willing offering. It was an offering of love on the part of Jesus. Uh, the greatest act of love ever ever given, and that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is this idea that you hear that uh, Jesus did everything. I don't have to do anything. It is finished, um, and that's not accurate either. Jesus didn't. Uh, Jesus made my salvation possible uh, by meriting the graces at Calvary that make my salvation possible. But I have to say, I have to cooperate with that grace in order to prove the faith that I allege. Uh, this is what James talks about in chapter two. We can allege that I have faith. You say you have faith and I have works. Uh, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is what James is saying. Uh, so, without love, what proof is there of faith? How is the faith completed? Yeah, and uh, when we look at this idea of paying the debt, uh, there's 
there's two different things going on here. There's this understanding of original sin, but there's also understanding of a debt due to a curse. When the Israelites were in the desert, uh, they took on the curse that came with the oath. So when they swore that they were going to keep the commandments, they were sprinkled with the blood of the bull, showing that they were also taking on the curse of separation from God. So when Paul talks about paying the debt, the Protestants misunderstand this, because this is bringing the Israelites back in union with God. And so Christ is going to the cross to pay the debt, because he's taking on that curse. And therefore, Paul says, curse is the one who goes to the cross. So the Gentiles were never under Mosaic law. They were simply under this law, this natural law. And they were being constantly being influenced by paganism. So they had no real uh, uh, culpability for the Mosaic law whatsoever. So part of this debt and going to the cross is bringing the Gentiles, uh, bringing the Israelites back in line with God. So they take this idea of paying the debt, and they simply say, oh, this is once saved, always saved. Right. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Before we uh, get out, quick programming notes that uh, we need to get out of the way. First of all, Luke will not be here next Friday. He's going to be out of town, uh, but he will return the following Friday, which is the 12th, and then the following day on Saturday the 13th, we got big news. We're adding another apologist, a regular show uh, and he's a big name, folks, good friend of mine, and uh, I know uh, he's probably a good friend of yours, too, Luke. William William Reckless. Hemsworth is doing oh, this. Great guy. Great guy. He is, very, very, he's a very, great very, guy. Very I'm just so pleased that he's going to be part of our team, and he's joining us on uh, – uh, he's going to be with us every Saturday starting on – May 15th. Luke, great show tonight, as usual, and I wonder if you would uh, close us with a prayer. Well, why, don't, why don't we say a Hail Mary? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy own Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you, brother. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see you in two weeks. You too.